House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. So today we are talking true crime again, and this time it's from Canada. Believe it or not, something happens in Canada and uh, in Toronto. Uh, the big T.O. And we're going to be talking about the book Outraged. And it's the, the murder of shoeshine boy Emmanuel Jacques. And our author, and he's joining us today, it's Robert Huchowski. I think I said that right. Um, thanks for being here. Oh, you're most welcome, Alan. Oh. Now, um, so, um, let's start with you. Um, how did you get into writing books on true crime? Uh, this is actually my third book, and uh, I grew up with a mother who was a bit of a bit of a quick backstory. She was very overprotective, but for some reason, she was very much fascinated with true crime. So, despite being overprotective, I was subjected to countless stories from her about what was ha what was happening in the news, everything from arson to you know all sorts of murders, which was kind of unusual when you think about it. So as a kid, I actually had a very strong interest in true crime, which was furthered by an individual who passed away recently named Max Haynes. And Max Haynes was a true crime writer for a newspaper here in Toronto called the Toronto Sun. Quite, he's quite, quite legendary, actually, in, in Canada. He's very, he was a very well-known man. And he would write his weekly column. And as a kid, I was obsessed by these columns. I found them fascinating. And to this day, I still find true crime to be the most interesting genre of all, because if it's done well, in my opinion, it, it encompasses so much more than just crime. It encompasses the history of the time, and it encompasses the people involved. It, it's just such a fascinating area. So I've had an interest since I was basically a little kid. And, you know, and, and actually uh, looking at true crime over the years, has it changed? And, and, I, and I'm, I, I mean that more in general. It, like when you read the crimes and you read the articles back years ago compared to now, do you, do you think true crime has changed in nature? That's a, a great question, and I think the coverage of crime has changed a lot because of privacy laws. I'm not sure what it's like in the U.S., but in Canada, for example, my, my first book is on the last executions, which took place here in 1962. And going through old files, I realized very quickly that newspaper coverage back in the 50s and 60s was very different from the you know 90s, 2000s to the present day. Details were um, much more revelatory back then. There were a lot more specifics, and I think what happened is sometimes police started to crack down on this a little bit because you'd have people making false statements. I remember one story where the reporter actually got into the murder victim's apartment and started describing everything in such incredible detail, including the color of the victim's cap. And apparently, some yeah, it sounds crazy, but apparently somebody actually did say afterwards they made a false confession and they actually were citing as evidence, you know, well, you know, I, I killed a guy, and I saw his gray cat, and it was, a, it was this type of cat, and they gave the exact details of the apartment. So, I mean, in, in that way, like, you know, with privacy laws, a lot of the coverage from a newspaper point of view has changed, definitely. Yeah. And, and, and you're right about the coverage. Do you think, I mean, because in, now in Canada, too, the coverage is different, because um, I go between the two countries, and I know that... Um, you have to be very careful of what you report and how you use names and different things in crime, in true crime, as compared to the U.S. U.S. is just an open playground. You can say anything you want any time you want. Yes. Canada is a little bit more restricted. Do you think that makes it better or worse? Uh, I think it makes it worse, and the reason I would say that is because what happens is, as a journalist, you're not given a lot of information and there's a bit of guessing uh, because a lot of times documents are very heavily censored. In Canada we have something called the Access to Information Act and um, that came in I believe it was in the late 80s and what that does is um, you apply to different jurisdictions to get information. It could be about a crime, it could be about anything but then it's so capricious because you're given information with a lot of sections blacked out or pages missing entirely which has happened to me with all three of my books 
and it, it leaves these holes where you're trying to fill in the gaps. And from a writer's perspective, it can be a little bit frustrating. With my first book, I actually, the, one of the last two men executed in the States was an American and Arthur Lucas from Detroit. And the relevance of that is I was able to contact the FBI. And uh, within, I believe it was a week, I received a wealth of information from, from you folks in the States. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it, t- it took years to try to get anything from Canadian authorities, quite, quite literally. Yeah. No, I know. I've dealt with both, and I know what you mean. It's, just, uh, it's totally different. Um, it's just an open field in the U.S. They can't, you know, you have shows with Nancy Grace right through, and they just, it's a, it's a playground. And, uh, I, I, you know, but I will say one thing. I don't know about how you feel, but I think that trials are better run in Canada because of this. Right, um, the U.S. it becomes way too public, and way too many people have opinions, and it it sways. Um, you know, court cases sometimes some of those murder cases just go out of hand um, in the U.S. and it's just it just it gets crazy. And and I I like that it's a little bit more reserved until the case is done. You're absolutely right. I mean, we still follow to a large degree the British judicial system. You know, which which was based for a very long time on expediency as well. You'd have trials underway very, very quickly. Uh, in the States, I mean, it takes a while to gather momentum for certain instances, certain trials. And I find it fascinating now how many true crime shows are revisiting these old cases, like the Menendez brothers, for example. It's just, you know, it's, it's incredible to me. You know, it's like all this previously hidden information coming out and, you know, access to information. Like the one thing that always strikes me is how, in the U.S., you'll have access to, uh, you know, for example, nine eleven, nine one, nine eleven calls, right? right? You know, like after somebody's, you know, murdered or bodies found or something, and people will say things, you know, online, like, "Oh, in Canada, you know, we'll we'll have that information released really soon." I'm thinking, no, you won't. <laughs> no. <laughs> we we protect things here. Perhaps it, maybe it's a good thing, maybe it's a bad thing, but perhaps a bit too much. Yeah. Yeah, yes. I, in some cases it is for sure, and because uh, you know, I, even when um, I was involved in that Russell Williams case, and I know that the first girl that he attacked uh, wasn't of age, and we couldn't print her name. I know in the book, and we can't use the name ever. Yes, uh, because she was underage. So, whereas in the U.S., that wouldn't, you know, we we we'd have pictures and we'd have her family in the book. Well, with true, it's a good point, Alec, because with, with true crime, it's always a balance between what information, I don't know if you find this too as, as an author as well, but what information you have and what information you decide to use. Like for my most recent book, The Outraged One about the Shoeshine Boy murder, you know, the, the four men who were charged with his death and three were convicted, they had assaulted children many times before the murder, many, many times. They photographed them. It was quite despicable. And, you know, a lot of these kids testified in court. And I had access, actually, interestingly enough, one of the places I applied to for uh, material from the interior government actually sent me, perhaps it was a mistake, by mistake, a list of the uh, all the witnesses, including the little kids. And oh. I remember, yeah, and I'm, I remember I applied to the Toronto Police for information, and they were saying, well, we can't give you this, this information. And I was a bit offended, and I said, well, I know you can't give it to me, but I already have it. And I said, and, you know, this is my third rodeo, so to speak. You know, please please give me some benefit of common sense. I'm not going to publish the names of eight and nine-year-old and ten-year-old little boys who testified in court, which obviously I didn't. So for all three books, I've done that in certain instances. I've changed the names right. or I've omitted names, yeah, which, you know, you have to be. Like you mentioned with the Russell Williams, I mean, you have to have some sense of, of fairness, too, and these people have been traumatized so much as well. Oh, so. yeah. You know, and that, well, that first one that he assaulted was um, just last year when his wife had to settle those cases out of court. She still didn't have her name printed in the court document because she still is not 19. And that's 10 years oh, okay. ago. That's 10 yes. years ago. So, yeah, you know, what, we, what would be the point of, of putting her name and being public with it? That would just be... You know, that's outrageous, I think, because she, she was an eight, nine-year-old when something happened to her. Like, why, you know, I I wouldn't anyway. So I just, you know, so, but again, like I said, across the border in the U.S., you can just, you know, it's, it's really open. 
So yes, you know, yeah, you know. But now, now this book, Outrage. How did you? Yes. How did you get to this case? Like, what led you to writing this book? Um, bit of a backstory. I'm the child of uh, my mother was born in Canada. My father came from Ukraine, so basically the child of immigrants. And I was about nine months older than Emmanuel Jackson when he was killed. And he was a Portuguese immigrant whose family had come to Canada just about three years earlier. You know, the typical, you know, American slash Canadian dream. Come over, don't know the language much, you don't necessarily have the right education to get a good job, but you take any job you can, build up a family and, you know, settle, settle in the States or Canada. And uh, I remember the coverage of the case at the time. And I had actually wanted to be a shoeshine boy. And because it was before the murder, you know, there were pictures, people forget about this, but there were pictures in the paper of these eager young kids shining shoes on Young Street in Toronto, downtown Toronto. And uh, just before the murder, I remember maybe it was parental influence, but my mother was like, like, no, you're getting another, if you want to work and you want your own money, you're going to get something else. So have a paper route. So I got a paper route, which, you know, seems somewhat benign on the surface, but that actually is what also sparked my interest in journalism. Because I didn't just deliver the paper, I, I read it, like, cover to cover. Got oh, a strange yeah. kid, I think. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> you know, 13, year old, 13 years old and reading, you know, comic books and, and the newspaper. Yeah. <laughs> but it was one of those cases where, where, you know, I like to say in the book as well that, you know, people of a certain age remember it all too well, and they definitely do. What they may not remember is the different ramifications of the case and how many different areas it affected. I mean, it affected the city legally and socially and economically and even, like, sexually yeah. and aesthetically, you know, because what happened is a lot of the buildings, you know, long story short, the massage parlor, the underground massage parlor industry really, really, Grew and I was actually fortunate enough in my research to get a lot of information about just how much. For example, in 1973, there were 36 body rubs on a certain stretch of Young Street. They're all illegal, and they kept closing and opening. A year later, in 74, there were 83, and in 75, there were 115. Wow! So it spread like a virus, basically, and it ended up affecting the city's tourism because people didn't want to go down there. Yeah. And, um, you know, it became this whole messy situation where, you know, it was like you either were part of it or you avoided it. So it was, there was a lot about Young Street written over the years about how it should have been cleaned up and it wasn't. And then, you know, ultimately there was this horrific murder in uh, July of 1977 and the city basically said enough. Like we're not, we're not having this happen anymore in Toronto. Yeah. So they can go across to Buffalo. Well, <laughs> you never know. You never know. For, even even before the murder, actually, some of our local councillors were saying that um, you know a lot of the crime in Toronto was the result of the mob coming over from the states. Right. Oh, of course. I, because, see, I knew there was an American yeah. angle. We, oh yeah, that's definitely. There always is. There always is. Yeah, but you know the thing is, um, so these these. You know, when you're saying over a hundred body rubs and all this stuff, somebody had to be going to keep them in business. Oh, definitely, they had their their repeat clientele, and uh, what happened is a lot of them started up in half addresses, which is kind of strange. I'll explain. So basically, had like where the murder took place was above a body rub, which made things even worse because it was. This this representation of how bad Toronto had become. It was, it was two four technically two forty five and a half Young Street. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So what happened on one side of Young Street? They put up this amazing structure called the Eaton Center. The same year as the murder, it opened actually. This beautiful, almost like a suburban mall in downtown Toronto. And business owners on the other side of the street, on the east side of Young, not the west where the Eaton Center was, but the east side. They were thinking, oh, good, we're going to end up getting lots of money for our businesses. So they sat on them, and they sat on them and sat on them for years, and nothing happened. So basically, they outpriced the rents, and the only people who could afford these places were the sex industry. And a lot of them, you know, they do like the second floor, come upstairs and see me sometime type of place. Yeah. The bar, <laughs> side parlors. Yeah. And the advertising at the time, I remember as a kid, I mean, it was it was 
smile. Like it was, you know, so much in your face. Like you'd be, you know, a six-year-old walking with your mom or a ten-year-old walking with your parents down Young Street, and someone would hand you a poster for you girls. Yeah. You know, for you know, and you're like a little kid. It's like in, it's like in Vegas. I don't know if they still do that. Those guys handing out the you know sex cards and such. Yeah. But here it was like you know on on, the, on what what was one of the nicest streets in all of Canada, <laughs> and you have people hand up these things and tell you know go to this place for a good time and all that type of stuff. Yeah, oh, it reminded me of Paris when I was there near the uh, oh what part of town? That was the same thing. Uh, everybody <clears throat> out there handing you slips and you know go, go for a good time and all that and girls. <laughs> yeah, that's that's exactly what this was. Wow. I, you yeah. know, actually, I didn't realize they did that in Toronto. I didn't realize. Wow. I thought Canada was a little bit more conservative than that. No, no. It's the one, the one thing I always tell people is that, uh, you know, Canada's got quite the history, and the thing is we uh, basically try to hide a lot of it. <laughs> yeah, well, no, it, it, like, Toronto at the time, literally Young Street Island, was being compared to 42nd Street in New York in the mid-'70s. And I actually went with my dad to 42nd Street in New York in the 70s. <laughs> and, I, and I remember him, like, like it was another world, you know, like trash cans that were on fire and, you know, the homelessness. And I think my first taste of New York, I remember seeing this this crazy guy directing traffic with this huge eagle. He had his shirt off, eagle, and then I love the intersection. Because the first thing we saw was out on the bus stage was this guy screaming at the top of his lungs. And Toronto wasn't necessarily that bad, but it was heading towards that, which is one of the reasons why the city took action to to close these places. Wow. So now, well, were they successful in the fact that, was it stuff like the murder that happened that that really changed it? or? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's still, it's still controversial to this day because, as, as you mentioned earlier, you know, there were people frequenting these body rubs and, you know, Young Street did have a certain character at the time. You know, some people liked the sort of seediness of it and uh, this definitely changed that. They hired an attorney who I interviewed for the book as well. His name is Morris Manning. He's a very, very interesting man. He also represented Scientology at one point. Oh. Uh, he, yeah, he's represented... Um, Henry Morgenthaler, who was our abortion doctor. Right. That's another controversial case, but um, <laughs> Morris brought in something from World War II uh, called basically the Padlock Law, which was a somewhat antiquated law where the city had the right to shutter these body rubs if they had been found guilty of having any sort of uh, sexual illegal sexual activity happening in them. And the reason it was so draconian is because the city could literally come and change the locks, and the owners of the building couldn't do anything. They couldn't rent out the building. They couldn't even enter it for a year. Oh. Yeah, so they slapped. It was, it was unbelievable. So I remember asking him, I said, well, what happened if a pipe burst? And you know, his response was, nobody cared. <laughs> you know, you're, so the, the, the landlords were flipping out because they were losing tens of thousands of dollars in rent. You know, because they had these places and they couldn't even access them themselves. So the padlock law basically changed everything on Young Street. Yeah, well, that that, that would seem that kind of seems out of character. So they were allowed to do that, and, and it was never challenged or anything. Oh, there were challenges, but nothing. None were successful. There were people fighting on both sides. You had the uh, the, the so-called legitimate, I hate using that word, but like the legitimate businesses on Yacht Street. One of them was a shoe shine shop, which had the misfortune of being between two body rubs. <laughs> the owner of that, the owner and president, self-appointed president, started this foundation to basically fight the uh, sex industry. And the sex industry started up their own foundation, their own legal action. And they had their own lawyers. And it was just this huge, huge mess with lawsuits back and forth and... I mean, I detail quite a, bit, quite a bit of that in the book, but within a very, very short time, you know, a lot of these places were closed. Yeah. Well, and, and so what was the murder about? Like, what, what can you tell us about this, the, the setup, like this, the story of the murder? Well, what happened, it was four individuals who were charged. And these were all grown men who were living either transient lifestyles Semi, I want to, I want to say homeless, semi-homeless. You know, they they flop at one person's house or they'd live some other place, and several of them worked and lived in this place 
called Charlie's Angels. It was an apartment above the body road. <laughs> so picture, picture if it was a three-story building, which actually was torn down not long ago, in fact. So ground floor was a store called Orientique, which sold like oriental souvenirs. Second story was Charlie's Angels Body Rob, and the apartment was a third story. And the, the apartment and the building itself is as much of a character in the book as the men themselves. Because what happened is they abducted this boy, they lured him away, Emmanuel Jacks, from Shining Shoes at the corner of Young and Dundas, which is like the busiest intersection in all of Canada. And uh, he was subjected to a 12-hour ordeal where he was re repeatedly raped, tortured, and ultimately murdered with his body being dumped, excuse me, in a vent on the roof of this building. Mm. So that's what happened. And it just, it, to say it shocked the city was just, it's an understatement. And you asked earlier about the different coverage of, of crime. And one of the things about this case, too, which was very unusual, is the detail the press went to, the lengths they went to, to publicize the murder and exactly what happened to him. Like, even if you read it today, four years later, a lot of the newspaper coverage is just horrific. And people were upset by that, too, because you know it's, not, it's nothing you would expect from Canada. And here you had the exact details of how he was tortured and murdered being published in newspapers right and this was this was four men that did this to him it was four men who were charged and one was um acquitted and ordered released which in itself was extremely controversial and it's still still extremely controversial so because, yeah. i was just going to say that would be that just i mean um, the gay lifestyle in in in, in effect was not it wasn't legal at that time, and to have four men uh, lure a boy that's underage and then, you know, rape him and kill him. How how would the press handle that then? I, I'm the coverage at the time was pretty graphic, and it actually got even worse during the trial. So how the press handled it is, um, to a large extent, they reported exactly what happened. And uh, it was it was it was bad. Like it was a bad bad case. You know, there's no such thing as a good murder, but this one was detailed. And it came out during the trial that these men had lured boys previously and molested them as well, and photographed them in various states of undress. You know, they weren't serial killers, but I think that were it not, there was there were serial pedophiles certainly, and I think that were it not for them being caught. And convicted, uh, it, they would have actually ended up killing more kids than Emmanuel, definitely. Wow! So they were kind of doing it as a gang in a way, or it yes. wasn't just happens. It wasn't just where it just happened where they were just all in the room or something. They were planning to do it. They were planning. They had done it before. They had photographic. Uh, I have in my book actually. They had photographic equipment, so just like basically the old-style film film cameras. Uh, they had photographed, uh, they had handcuffs, like lots of nasty, nasty stuff like that, like rest, other sorts of restraints. So it was it was planned and calculated. And in, as far as the evidence the police had uncovered, uh, not just rolls of unexposed film with naked kids on them, but also processed film with pictures of nude boys. So they actually had the photographs. Yeah. Now, but in, now, and this is Young Street. Now, was it um, uh, primarily a gay area at the time? Were those rub places straight or, or gay? These were straight places. Wow. These were straight places. Yeah. Yeah. No, there is there there was and is like a, a gay village in Toronto, like around the church in Wellesley area, which is also downtown. Right. But another angle to the story, which is just also quite quite awful, is that. Um, the press reported, and this became parroted over and over, is that Emmanuel died during a 12-hour homosexual orgy. And this was in 1977. This is the same time that, you know, remember Anita Bryant? Right, right. Yeah, like she was, she was, orange juice lady, exactly. She was gaining speed with her anti-gay um, rallies and such. And, like, it was for the gay community in Toronto, it was a horrible time because it basically made them look out, look as if all... You were home, as, all, as if all homosexuals were also pedophiles, which you know wasn't the case and isn't the case. Right. Yeah. And, and that, yeah, and that was the peak time because whenever the U.S. goes through their 
um, how do you say, uh, liberty fights, you know, with, with gays or uh, blacks or um, anything. It's, it, it, there's always the people like Anita Bryant that come out and, uh, and things like this that, that they bring out and uh, make it look the worst. Um, absolutely, absolutely. As a matter of fact, we even had a Toronto, um, I believe he was a minister, who actually supported Bryant and brought her campaign to Toronto right around the same time as this happened. Did they throw stuff at her there too, or <laughs> at that one? No, I don't think so. But but it, it, there was still like gay bashing going on in Toronto, and you know it was just like a bad bad time for it was a bad time for everybody. It was just a, one of the strangest summers on record. And what happened too is it also put the whole city in a sense of fear. I mean, I grew up in North Toronto, quite far from downtown, and you know my parents weren't alone in shielding me after this murder happened. I remember putting on Facebook, or I had mentioned to friends a few months back that I, you know, my book was finally ready to come out. And my God, so many of them of the same age were saying, I remember that time I couldn't even go outside to play. I had to go talk to my mom about who I was going to be with. You know, like this, was, this chill lasted for about a year afterwards. Yeah, I could imagine. So the whole city would have been in uh, uh, real turmoil because there would be people on both sides of the subject fighting about what to do uh, absolutely could, yeah i could imagine uh, how did the trial so the trial lasted a year you said or no actually it lasted just about uh, eight weeks eight we oh, so it, it, quick. It, it took place the year after yes yeah okay now how did they catch the guys or was there how did they figure out who it was that did this and how how did they lead to catching them like what was the big thing well, the four men who were initially involved were all somewhat spooky looking. Like, if you see in the book, one of them actually, his name's uh, Robert Cribbs. He's about six and a half feet tall and very menacing looking. So what they would do and what they had done to lure young boys before is take the most benign looking of all of them, which was somebody named Saul Batesh. And for all intents and purposes, he's basically, a, he's alive. He's a, he's a psychopath, as was the defense's attorney tried to use unsuccessfully in court, but that's what he used. Batesh was the best looking of them all. So Batesh was the one who would go out to lure boys. So he went out on the street, and he saw Emmanuel, Emmanuel's brother and a friend, all about the same age, uh, shining shoes. And he started joking with them and laughing, and they figured, okay, this guy's, you know, he's okay, more or less. But the older brother, Emmanuel's older brother and a friend, got a little bit creeped out by him when he said, uh, but I give you boys $35 an hour to move some camera equipment. So what happened is the older brother, Emmanuel's older brother and a friend, his name was Shane, they ended up going just around the corner to an outside payphone near a restaurant to call their mother's house for permission. The mother said no. By the time they came back, they saw Emmanuel disappearing into the crowd and they couldn't catch up to him. Oh, Okay. So that's it was it was it was this horrible. It was a missing persons case at first, and it was also stymied by the fact that Emmanuel's was Portuguese, and um, so the brother went back to this area called Regent Park. It was like a low income area of trial to the parents' apartment. Told them what had happened. The father frantically came downtown to look for the brother. Then the older sister was told so then she called police but this wasn't until hours and hours later so for four days it was a missing persons case it wasn't uh an it wasn't seen as a necessarily an abduction right yeah, yeah. so what happened is this guy ended up taking Saul Batash took Emmanuel out for a hamburger to like a Howard Johnson's near there and the relevance of that is that after the murder he realized that he could be identified possibly by the waiter at Howard Johnson's so what he did, yeah, so what he did is he went to a um, very well-known gay activist at the time, and uh, the gay activist got him an attorney and said, you have to turn yourself in. So Batesh turned himself in, and he spoke to the police for, I believe, it was something like nine or ten hours. This this bizarre, bizarre story, and at first they actually didn't even believe him. And it's quite quite creepy and sad, but then he finally said, you know, Emmanuel's murdered and he's stuffed in garbage bags at a vent on the roof of this body room on Young Street. So the police were hoping to find him alive, so they smashed open the door, went upstairs, and tragically he was he was dead. Hmm. And what happened is the other three were on a train to Vancouver, so this fellow in Sol Batesh basically ratted them out, 
So they ended up, uh, Ontario Provincial Police ended up pulling over the train, and uh, that's how they apprehended them. Wow. And so that was quite a, that would have been quite the, wow, that would have been a big, big controversy then, eh? Um, oh, so, it was huge. So now, the, so I'm, I'm guessing that the um, psychopath that told the cops is the one that didn't get put away. Oh, he did actually. Oh, um, okay. So yeah, yeah. There actually, so there were four individuals. Uh, one who was lure, who lured Emmanuel initially. Saul Batash is still behind bars. Uh, Joseph Woods was another one. He actually got uh, in prison for this. Robert Cribbs, the tall one I mentioned to you, he's also he's also was uh, imprisoned. And one of them named, named Werner Gruner was found not guilty. Because he, they couldn't prove that he directly was involved in the sexual assault, although he knew very well that it was happening because he held open the door to the back of this body rub place, to the back stairwell. So he knew that the boy was being taken in there. Right. So he, so, he just knew what was going on but didn't take part. He knew what was going on in his attorney's defense, which from a legal perspective was interesting. It was obviously successful because he got he got off. Was that he was either eating, sleeping, high, watching TV, or going out for ice cream? Well, there you. That's a, what else is there? Yeah. Um, so he was. So he was able to basically say, you know, I was in another room when the assault was happening, so I didn't hear what was going on. So yeah. now, how did this change the community? Like, what happened when they caught them? Um, now, did did people treat, still keep their kids under guard did it really change the community oh for quite a while absolutely uh people parents were very very cautious about who their kids were with i mean you figure toronto's you know such a benign city and this was you know we've had plenty of horrific murders over the years you know most notably in, in canada you know paul bernardo uh, you know, we've had, we've had our Clifford Olsons, we've had our Carla Hamolkas, we've had some pretty bad, you know, Russell Williams, we've had some bad murders. But they're all but, English. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But this, well, speaking of which, actually, what's interesting, too, is that for this, there's just this confluence of events, because the murder itself happened almost a year to the day after then-Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau's government abolished capital punishment. Oh, yeah. And the support for capital punishment was still extremely high. Like, the, the voting in Parliament was, I think it was a seven or eight votes. It was a very narrow margin. And there were calls for it to come back. And the Portuguese community in particular were just enraged. There were demonstrations in Montreal. There were demonstrations in Ottawa. And one in Toronto with an estimated 15,000 people. Yeah. You know, they, they carried effigies. They carried dolls, like life-size dolls with nooses around their necks swinging back and forth saying you know, hang, hang the bastards like yeah. this was yeah. you know very un-Toronto like yeah well I remember my dad who was Canadian in, in Vancouver when uh, the law changed and uh, whenever I was seeing him he would always be telling us how um, they should take Pierre Trudeau's wife out and rape and kill her in front of him and see if he wants the death penalty like he's wow he was enraged as well so i i know i remember the uh i remember the time <laughs> so, yeah yeah it was not 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 a good time not no, a good time definitely no it was it was uh uh it was tougher so now these guys got put away um the the one that that didn't the one that that um, got off um, is he still alive, and is he still kind of in the community? That's a great question, actually. Um, I was asked that back in November when the book came out, and uh, I kind of think I creeped people out because it was at Metro Reference Library, and they asked that question. I said, he could be in the audience right now. <laughs> <laughs> he, he could be. The last, the last known sighting of him, interestingly enough, was in the Toronto Star, about I guess maybe 15 years ago, and um, so there's somebody, so, some reporter who obviously didn't know who he was, was uh, doing photographs, and they took a picture of him. His name's Werner Gruner. They took a picture of him uh, at a downtown park, lying on his back, reading, drinking a bottle of donated water, and it was saying that during this heat wave, how nice it was to uh, to help out, you know, the homeless. So these four men were basically like I said, just a step above a homeless anyway. 
Right. Although the the one who was the who's still cited to this day, he's still alive, uh, Saul Batesh. He was adopted as a weak old child from a 16-year-old mother in Montreal. And this kid was given the best life imaginable. Imaginable. And basically his parents ended up losing everything because of him. Wow. What, just yeah. from lawsuits? or? or no, no. They uh, He was... It's, it's this old question, age-old question, which, you know... I'm sure we could get a bunch of true crime writers and talk about till you know the wee hours of the morning. Are people born bad? His biological mother said she sensed evil in him as soon as he was born. It sounds a bit over dramatic, but his adoptive parents spent a fortune on sending him to psychiatrists and psychologists, not just in Canada but in the states, on individualized treatment. It, it's amazing. They spent so much money. He was basically murderous even as a kid. He tried to kill his own sister when he was five. Ooh. He so had her lined up. He had her lined up. He threw knives at her. His name should have been Damien. You'd think. <laughs> yeah, in this case, you'd think. I mean, he tried to kill a nanny by pouring nail polish remover in her ear while she slept. He tried to electrocute his own mother by rewiring the house. Like, you know, we're talking... Crazy, wow. crazy, crazy stuff. Yeah, it was yeah. from seeing the American psychiatrist that did it. Yeah, possibly. <laughs> no, but I, like to this day, I still feel. I mean, his parents are gone now, but I still feel like I do feel badly for them because you know they really. The father owned the linen company, right. and yeah, these these people lived in an area of Toronto called Forest Hills. Very, very fancy. It's like like the think, think of the Hamptons. That's yeah. basically what it's like. And by the time their son was charged with the murder, and he was 27, they were living in a little apartment about near school. That's how things changed so dramatically for them. They had they didn't have the business any longer. They lost you know I don't even know how many probably hundreds of thousands of dollars they spent trying to get help for their kid. Nothing worked. Oh, it's, it's it's kind of sad in a way for them, right? They. It, I could imagine. Um, where what happened then afterwards? So after they get, you know, convicted and it's all done, did uh, did Young Street that area clean up or did it kind of go back? Oh no, it, it cleaned up actually within about a year, year and a half. It was it was very very rapid. The city shuttered these body rubs very quickly. Uh, basically, so, you know, there were different proposals, like, let's drive them out, let's put them in industrial areas, and, you know, by instead they did the padlock law, like I mentioned, and that ended up being very effective in closing them. So the city definitely cleaned up. I mean, Young and Dundas today, which is ironically where Emmanuel was abducted from and murdered just, you know, a few hundred feet from there, yeah. it's pro- probably one of the best-known, nicest spots in all of Canada. It's, like, ultra-modern. There's a movie theater there. Restaurants is a square there, Young Dundas Square, where they have different events. So you talk to somebody who's younger, and you tell them this story about Emmanuel, and it's it's you get this look sometimes on their faces, like you know, are you for real? Like you, this actually happened? It's like yeah, this happened in 1977, and it changed the face of Toronto. Yeah. I, you now, is it still going on? But and is it just moved nowadays? It's gone like a like. It's a good, good, good question. It's gone underground like a lot of cities, and you know a lot of that is due to the internet. Yeah. And you have these freebie papers. I'm not going to name them in Toronto, but there's one in particular where the last dozen pages are nothing but ads for for basically sex. You know, yeah. so a lot of this stuff has gone underground. People, I don't, I don't know how they do it. Like order order some escort online or something yeah. like that. <laughs> yeah. But it's like you know, like you don't see you don't see the street prostitutes. Not just on, not just downtown, but basically anywhere. You don't see that type of thing much anymore at all. Yeah, you it's, know, all, that, it's just know. moved online. It's moved online, and what I find interesting and a little bit bizarre as a tangent is the decline also of the uh, strip clubs in Canada and North America, which I thought was kind of odd because there used to be also not just this body rubs, but like you know, strip clubs and things like that, and porno shops on Yonge Street. And even in recent months about how many of these uh, strip clubs are closing, and there's apparently less and less demand for it. So I don't know what that's all about. Maybe maybe it's moved online too somehow. Possibly. Maybe Possibly. Yeah. I, 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 you know, I don't know. Maybe Stephen would know. I think he's involved in that. But 
He's being quiet. Yeah, he's full of this. Involved in that. Oh, I see, I see Alan. <laughs> he, goes, uh, he, he was busy at one of those places. So um, now that it's all done, uh, how, what's the reaction to the book for you? Uh, quite favorable, actually. Uh, the launch itself in November, it was very touching because some people came up to me who knew Emmanuel who I had never met before doing the book, and they said, thank you for honoring his memory this way. I mean, it's a, it's a very, like I mentioned, a very, very difficult story. And the sad reality is, it, if it wasn't Emmanuel, it would have been another kid. Right. Because, you know, especially, like these guys had assaulted, you know, other boys many, many times before this. And the one I mentioned earlier, the one with the wealthy parents, Saul Batesh, his his interest in boys got younger and younger and younger. He went from teenagers to admitting in court that he wanted to be with like six-year-olds. It was disgusting. Wow. So you know, it, it was it was, just, it was a steam, it was a pressure cooker, and it was going to burst at some point. And, and did they ever do psychological profiles, or did they ever get into that and kind of figure out what was wrong, or they just sort of didn't bother? They just figure no. Oh, many, many actually, especially on Batesh. I interviewed his attorney. Uh, who's almost 80 now, his name's Paul Tomlinson, a lovely man, and he actually had access to a lot of these reports from these different schools and um, different psychotherapists over the years, and, you know, he was, Batesh was extensively tested, and, you know, essentially, this is again 40 years ago, but, you know, the determination was he was a psychopath, and uh, his attorney tried to get him some sort of treatment and he felt stymied by the medical system in Canada, which was also another controversy because no psychiatrist in Canada would speak on Batesh's defense for the simple reason his attorney thought because they didn't want to have the bed occupied forever by one guy. Because back then people thought, you know, these psychopaths could be effectively treated. Right. You know, there's different, there's different viewpoints about that, obviously, today. But uh, Tomlinson tried to get him put into a mental health facility instead of prison. And he was unsuccessful. But the interesting thing about Batesh is that he's never gone away. He's behind bars. He is basically what the prison system described as one of the biggest pain in the asses in Canadian history. And uh, if I could explain about that for a moment, yeah, he's yeah. done every, he's done he's done everything over the years, from hunger strikes to uh, basically saying that he would kill himself if he didn't get kosher food behind bars to wanting the courts to acknowledge his same-sex same marriage, to wanting candles in his cell because of his wicked beliefs, to wanting, to wanting his, I'm not kidding, to wanting a ceremonial garden in the prison facility. And in 2011, he was on a site, American site, so there's your American connection, there you go. Called, called, called inmateconnection.com, looking for pen pals. So that made the news here. And then in 2017, February, so just less than a year ago, he was on a site called CanadianInmatesConnect.com, also looking for pen pals. So he's one of these people who basically never never goes away. Well, it, I, I didn't even realize those sites existed. And, and so they're allowed to go online and have contact like that? No. Uh, in, Canada they're, in Canada, they're permitted to have somebody on their behalf post this ad, but then somebody has to physically mail a letter to them. They can't actually access it online. Oh, so it's kind of indirect, but they still do it. Yes, but it, I think his profile is still up there, in fact. There's you know, the photo of him and the whole, the whole description. And what's, what's especially repellent about Batesh is that for his first profile in 2011 on inmateconnection.com, um, you know, everybody else was saying what they did, all these other inmates, because I went to the site where saying, you know, I did murder, rape, whatever. Yeah. But Tesh put, it, put his uh, conviction as assault. Wow. Yeah, he wouldn't even admit. He, he basically, it's like no, no sense of remorse, no nothing. He wouldn't even admit 40 years later to murder. Wow. Could you imagine trying to hook up with someone that's in prison for something like that? I, I, I could never understand that. You see people that, you know, like that girl that wanted to marry Charles Manson, and and you, you just have to kind of wonder what kind of personality would do that. Usually, um, from what I understand with the women, usually they're abused themselves. Right. 
And as bizarre as it sounds, the reason they seek the un- unattainable, which is you know, somebody on death row or somebody serving life behind bars, is because they're the ones who can actually exert control. They're the ones who can say, yeah, I'm going to go visit you on this date. They're the ones who send the letters or do the phone calls or send the gifts or something. Yeah, I, I find that interesting, and that's, that's a unique way of, um, I, you know, because the Menendez, you know, we interviewed the Menendez uh, group for that new A&E show, you know, uh, was it Lyle? No, it was Eric. Oh, yes. And he's married. And uh, I, I just found that her to be very, I, I don't know, I can't, I can't even come up with the word. Uh, because, um, you know, she's been married to him almost 20 years now. And I just, I it, don't know, you know, it just seems unusual. Um, it's it's truly bizarre when you think about it that you're and also I mean if if the person is sincere like you know let's assume that she is in this case you're committing your life to someone who you'll have no physical contact with no real relationship nobody who you can come home to at the end of a crappy work day and say you know this is what happened my boss yelled at me or something like the normal pleasantries and and experiences of life you're not having that at all you're just having this person is almost like this ghost behind bars. Yeah, yeah. I just, I, I just find that really, because in a way, aren't you? You're kind of sacrificing your own life. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, just, um, yeah. Yeah, I just, I just find that really strange. And well, with Menendez, I guess she can, you know, as she claims, he's innocent. Um, and uh, if that's her belief, fine. Um, something like what you're talking about with these guys, you, you know, that they were. Uh, murderous and and doing awful things so to try and become a part of that person's life just seems a little bit stretched out absolutely absolutely i mean i i don't i know that one newspaper pundit said that batesh will get the pen pal he deserves <laughs> so <laughs> yeah it was that luca, I don't know who... luca magnata make me <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <one> of <laughs> that would have been. That's what we needed. Someone like that. Uh, He's another one. God, I, I followed some sites on Facebook which have been closed down. Just you know, professional interests, right? Yeah. And my God, there's people who are convinced that he was framed. Magnata. Oh, I know. It's crazy. Yeah, and they're so passionate about it. They're so passionate. Yeah, I got into a battle with one of those. Um, and also because he said that you know Jody Arias down in Arizona was was innocent too, and it was like, I mean, come on, you know, there's only so much you can take, and uh, yeah. you know, I mean, you know, and Luca Magnata, my God, what a case that was, you know. I was with my wife in Spain and Portugal when that happened. And all they kept, we were on a bus tour, and most of the people on the bus tour were Americans, and I just thought, oh my God, they're going to have like the worst impression ever of Canadians and yeah. what happens in Canada. <laughs> it's like you're sending these body parts to the Prime Minister's office. And, and it was the same week as that, um, that remember that person um, bit that homeless man's face off under a bridge? Oh, yeah, right. It was all within a few days, and I'm just thinking, dear God, what's happening in yeah. the world, you know? Yeah. Something, something in the water. Definitely. <laughs> wow. It's just endless. So so what do you got planned now? Are you just gonna rest for a while or do you jump right back into writing or uh I do a lot of my own writing as well. Like I do a lot of uh and it seems like a bit of an odd thing, I do a lot of business writing too. Yeah. I've actually been doing that for quite a few years, so it's kinda of like the bread and butter, so to speak. I'd love to get started on another book. I'm actually in the process now of looking for another agent. And um, I have, like, as sure as, as the case with you, I have, like, a number of ideas for books lined up. It's just a matter, you know, which one is of its time. Like, this book, the Outraged book, would have been initially my second book, not my third. My second book is a collection of unsolved crimes. And it just took took about ten years to, to germinate, but it finally came to fruition. It's kind of how it goes, I find. Uh, you know, comes in waves and certain things just happen, and... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's great. Um, it's certainly, uh, this is an incredible story. I just, uh, I'm sort of in shock in a way. Um, I wasn't expecting that out of Canada, so I'm disappointed in you. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, there, there's so there's so many angles. I mean, there was this one thing I so just quickly should mention too is that identical, but it was perpetrated by one individual four years, pretty much to the day before Emmanuel's murder, also downtown in Toronto. And there was outrage over that, but not nearly to the extent of this. So there's still controversy about that murder and Emmanuel's murder because of the fact that Emmanuel's murder happening on Young Street pretty much gave the city carte blanche to close these body row places. It, gave, it was the, the aha moment for them. It was The city was able to say, look, if anything embodies how crappy Young Street is now, this this is it. Yeah. You know, and where's where's this other murder of this poor kid named Kirkland Deasley took place in a place called the Ford Hotel, literally a ten minute walk from where Emmanuel was murdered. Literally. Yeah. But it happened, you know, at another intersection and there wasn't the same degree of outrage as there was over Emmanuel's murder. Yeah. Well yeah, I'll have to stay away from Toronto now. No, <laughs> <laughs> no. We, we have quite uh, quite the history. I mean, there's a lot of connections to the states with regard to murders, like H. H. Holmes. Oh yeah. I don't know if you're, yeah. He actually the individuals he killed the uh, uh, Paisel Paisel family members. They're buried in Toronto, and uh, he killed the kids in Toronto on a street called Victor Avenue, which no longer exists. It's ironically where Toronto Police Headquarters is located now. <laughs> Right, right downtown. But uh, there's, there's definitely the connections to, from the states to Canada. Quite a few with, uh, with major crimes. We just don't talk about it much here. That's the problem. You know, like we have, we have a very interesting, disturbing history with you know capital punishment and serial killers and spree killers. But you know, in Canada, we tend not to talk much about these things. No, I know, I, I know what you mean. Yeah. Well, it's certainly been a pleasure. Um, Again, now the books, of course. Uh, now, is it on Amazon, and can it be found in bookstores as well? It is on Amazon right now. Uh, .ca and uh, .com as well. Right. And as for bookstores, um, as far as I know, it should be rolling out in bookstores fairly soon. But right now, it's mainly through Amazon. Okay. Uh, again, our guest uh, has been uh, Robert Wachowski. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you very much. Pleasure talking to you. To find out more about our show, guests, or listen to a previous show, visit our website at www.somethingweirdmedia.com. The mission has been completed. The end! By George, he's got it! It is the end! I'll see you! If you're lying to me, I'll be back. This has been a production of Something Weird Media.